Hello, and welcome to Tales from Imperial Russia, with Dr. James White. Episode 20. Genteel Country Lives. The Tale of a Chikachov Family. In 1820, the tiny village of Doloshayeva, tucked away in a green corner of the central Russian province of Vladimir, played host to an event of great local significance. The young noble landowner, the retired second lieutenant Andrei Chikachov, married Natalia Chernavin, the daughter of a naval captain who himself owned an estate nearby. While we do not have an account of the event itself, we can imagine the festivities. Scores of local gentry would have come out of the woodwork, ready to dance, chat, and of course, drink. There were probably so many guests that they would have had to sleep in the outbuildings of a two-storey wooden manor house, in one of its many barns, threshing houses, or storerooms. The nearby market town of Shuya, known then as now for producing particularly pure vodka, would have provided large quantities of the strong alcoholic spirit. Meats and pastries would surely have been of local provenance, grown and raised by the several hundred peasants who lived on the combined estates of a newlywed couple. And the ceremony itself was no doubt intoned by either the Doloshayeva priest or one from the surrounding neighbourhood, familiar with both the Chikachov and Chernavin families from repeated church visits, occasional donations and repeated social calls. Although we might imagine a few gifts and guests would have come from the provincial capital of Vladimir, or even the old national capital of Moscow, a 48-hour carriage ride away, the marriage was an almost entirely local affair. This set the tone for the union between Andrei and Natalia, who were to spend the vast, vast majority of the rest of their lives ensconced in Dolojeva, looking after their estates, raising their family, and in general living the life of middling provincial nobles, neither too poor to afford the occasional luxury, nor rich enough to ever truly escape the rigours of prudent financial management. In this tale, we will follow the lives of Andrei and Natalia Chikochov on their estate of Dalajayeva, as they encountered the minor joys, travails and tribulations of the provincial nobility, similar to tens of thousands of petty gentry scattered across the countryside of central Russia. I tell this tale not because the Chikachovs were remarkable, they were not. They were not responsible for any great feats, nor did they bear the consequences for colossal, ignominious failures in the reign of Nicholas I from 1825 to 1855. They were involved in no terrible scandals. They were entirely average, perhaps even boring. But yet, this is what makes them interesting. They are the perfect representatives of how this particular group in Imperial Russian society, middle-of-the-road landowning gentry, lived their lives, of how they dealt with and conceived of 
the world around them. The one way in which they were unique, their almost obsessive record-keeping and diary-writing, is what makes them the perfect lens into this world. But let us first establish our list of characters, our dramatist personae. Andrei Chikachev was born on the 20th of February 1798 on the estate of Dalajaeva, land given to his great-grandfather by the emperor as recompense for services rendered. He was not to spend long in the family nest due to bereavement, with his father and mother passing away while he was still young, leaving him in the tender care of his maternal aunt. Andrei often referred to his cousin Nikolai as his brother and always maintained close relations with his female cousins. A few years later, he was dispatched to a military school in St. Petersburg and graduated as an officer just in time to see the Napoleonic Wars come to their conclusion in 1815. Andrei was marching through Poland when news came of the French Emperor's end at the Battle of Waterloo. He served for another three years in the army before resigning and returning to Dalasheva. All was not well at the family pile. Andrei's elder brother had had the estate taken away from him for squandering huge sums of money, leaving Andrei to take the estate with a huge mountain of debt. Some 90% of the holdings were mortgaged. It was to take him and his wife until 1850 to fully pay off the damage his brother inflicted. For all of this, Andrei was able to make a good match. Natalia, born in 1799, brought with her a dowry of the small estate of Borduki. Both families had genealogies that could be traced firmly at least to the end of the 15th century. Indeed, the clans from which Natalia Chernavin descended could be followed back even further. Together, they were to live in this small corner of Vladimir province until Natalia died in 1866 and Andrei in 1875. Two of their children survived infancy, Alexei and Alexandra, born in 1825 and 1829 respectively. Andrei's closest friend was Natalia's brother, Yakov Chernayev, who inherited his father's estate of Belazovic in 1825. Yakov initially served as a naval officer, but he resigned in 1833 to spend his time, like Andrei, as a country gent. Paintings and daguerreotypes were done of the family, but none have survived. Andrei once described himself as Dashing, with a broken tooth, greying sideburns, and a small ginger moustache, while Yakov Chernavin was portrayed, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, as a small, stout, corpulent little man. Around them was a noble landowning society of around 159 families. While the vast majority of these individuals were absentee landlords, 26 of them feature as Andrei's relatives, friends and acquaintances. On particularly close terms with the Chikachovs were the Pozharskis, the Ikonikovs, the Kultashevs, the Yazikovs and the Chelipanovs. These were the local representatives 
around 900,000 nobles in the Russian Empire by 1850. What the terms noble and nobility mean in this context deserves some explanation. In the Russian Empire, nobility could be both inherited and earned through state service. Thus, the overwhelming majority of these 900,000 were career bureaucrats and soldiers, people who had either earned their nobility in these professions, or those who had inherited such small estates that they had no choice but to make a living through service to the state. At the other end of the spectrum were about 4,000 people, who owned colossal land holdings scattered throughout various provinces of the empire. These individuals typically lived in grandiose splendour in the imperial capitals of Moscow and Petersburg, serving in the highest echelons of the imperial court, government and armed forces. The Chikhachovs and their nearest acquaintances sat among the 17 to 20,000 nobles who lived off and worked on relatively modest estates, their almost exclusive source of income. These were the middling gentry, perhaps not important on a national level, but certainly locally significant, in charge of a day-to-day -day governing of the Russian countryside's vast peasant population. Although there was a tremendous gulf in how all these different groups lived and worked, they all shared the same legal status as nobles, defined by privileges like freedom from conscription, freedom from corporal punishment, and freedom from the poll tax. Geographically, the centre of the Chikhachovs' lives was the Doloshaeva estate and village, made up of around 140 people. At the centre was the manor house, a large but not grandiose residence, with several bedrooms, drawing rooms, pantries, offices and a kitchen. Per Andrei Chikhachov, this was the emptied, rotten, tall wooden house of my parents, from the rooms of which one could sometimes make astronomical observations, and not merely out of the windows. In 1835, out of concern for his wife's health, Andrei resolved to replace this dilapidated wooden structure with a stone building, capable of hosting at least five guests, as well as the family. This building still stands, in the Soviet period a school, but now a museum. The family also spent time each year in Natalia's Borduki manor house, most notable for sitting close to the crisp blue waters of a river. Both dwellings resided in Vladimir province, although Andrei also owned some slivers of land in neighbouring regions. Famed for its capitals, the monastery-clad medieval cities of Vladimir and Suzdal, Vladimir province was rather poor in the 19th century, largely due to unproductive, low-quality soil. Peasants, merchants and noble landowners alike made up for the province's low yield in crops by turning to industry, establishing in particular small cotton factories and workshops. These enterprises were aided by the province's proximity to Moscow, the hub of Russia's massive textile industry. Close to the Chikachayov estate 
were the market towns of Shuya and Kovrov. By 1849, Kovrov had a population of just under 2,000, 10 stone buildings and six streets, with merchants and vendors featuring particularly prominently among the population. For most of their lives, the horizons of Achikachovs were bound within this locality, travelling by horse or carriage around the local neighbourhood to visit friends and family or do business in Kovrov or Shuya. Trips to Vladimir and Suzdal were occasional. Even rarer still were visits to Moscow. The young Chikhachovs briefly lived in the enormous city shortly after their marriage, since Andrei was trying to solve the legal miasma he had inherited from his brother. In the 1840s, Alexei and Alexandra, the children, got to experience Moscow as boarding school students. Besides this, Andrei was educated in St. Petersburg, and both he and his son got to see some of Poland and Lithuania through military service. The family once went on a pilgrimage to the famous Monastery of the Caves in Kiev. This marks the furthest that these two generations of Achikachovs ever went. The tale of Achikachovs is told through their diaries, their records, their letters, their notebooks, which privileges their perspective and can heighten our sympathy for them. While certainly struck by tragedy and difficulties, their world can be seen as charmingly rustic, marked by innocent eccentricity, the beauty of the forests, fields and rivers around them, and the slow pace of countryside life. There is something here close to the modern middle-class notion of a country idyll, which perhaps adds to the sympathy we can feel for the Chigachovs. But we must remember a salient fact. Both Andrei and Natalia owned people. Between them, they owned around 240 to 350 serfs, unfree peasants bound by law to serve the owners of the land. Some, around 40 or so, served as household serfs, providing labour either in the manor house or in its immediate estate. Most of the others were field serfs, who spent their time either farming, raising livestock, or labouring in workshops or on various tasks. Besides obeying the dictates of the Chikachovs, they were bound to either pay annual sums in money or goods to the family, or to provide several days a week of free labour. And the Chikachovs wielded near absolute authority over them, with even the intimate affair of peasant marriage being in the hands of a noble family. In 1845, for example, Andrei and Natalia personally inspected all prospective couples from their estates over the course of several days before deciding on whether the betrothals could be seen to fruition. Disobedience could and was met with corporal punishment. In the worst cases, Andrei was perfectly prepared to contemplate exiling discontents to Siberia, a power that lay within his purview. Most of what the Chikachovs had was the fruit of peasant labour, their luxuries paid for in peasant sweat, their projects accomplished through peasant toil. 
The meat that adorned the table was meat from the family's farmers, paid to cover their obligations to their owners. Conservative, pious and patriotic, Andrei was not an unthinking cog in the machine of imperial Russian serfdom. In his private diaries and public statements, he referred to several justifications for the fact that he and his family lived off unfree labour. First, the social order was God-ordained. God had entrusted a role to the peasants that they must fulfil or risk punishment, both divine and worldly. That too was the landowner's fate. He had a moral and religious duty to care for both his estate and the people who worked on it. Second, Andrei conceived of the peasants in his charge as childlike, extensions of his own family. Peasants were badly educated and, as a consequence, irrational in their judgment and actions. As father, Andrei knew best and had to oversee peasant activities. If these activities were disrupted, then correctional discipline had to be exercised in the spirit of paternal care. Third, according to Andrei, the Chikachovs and their serfs existed in a symbiotic relationship. If the Chikachovs were not astute managers, if they did not deal with the debt his brother had left, then peasant life would suffer from discord and decay. Similarly, if the serfs did not do their duty, then the Chikachovs could expect the collapse of their household economy, deprived of the means to service their debts, buy their food, or educate their children. All of this seems to have guided Andrei and Natalia's management of their serfs. As Andrei recalled decades later, he had arrived initially in Dalajayeva in 1818 and had called a peasant assembly. Here he had laid out the full extent of his brother's debts and informed the serfs of what had to be done to remedy the situation. He promised not to raise either monetary or labour dues owed to him, but also stated he would do what was necessary to secure the estate and his family. The serf's duty was to work industriously, honourably and honestly. Andrei's duty was to oversee their labour and collect its fruits, using them for the betterment of all. The speech was concluded by a call to the parish priest to educate to admonish and to teach. A mass was then performed. This ceremony, which may or may not have occurred, embodied how Andre understood, and believed others should understand, relations between serfs and noble. A call to mutual self-interest, honest and transparent business dealings, and the sealing of the deal with divine sanction. As a consequence, of this somewhat contractual understanding, the Chikachovs were far from the most tyrannical of the Russian Empire's serf owners. Unlike some conservatives in the empire, Andrei was a passionate advocate of peasant education, establishing a public library on a nearby estate. This was conceived as part of his paternal duty to his peasant's children, a means that would develop them into more productive, cleaner, and more rational subjects for the benefit of themselves, his estate, and the empire at large. The handicrafts that Natalia made 
often went to clothe the peasants. The Chikhachovs insisted on smallpox inoculations for all of their villagers. Andrei, living his life entirely in the countryside, was entirely aware of the forms of passive resistance that serfs used to assert themselves, ranging from go-slow work regimes to drunkenness, absenteeism and petty theft. He and Natalia seemed to have preferred negotiation over punishment to deal with this, appealing to the fact that industrious, honest labour was to the benefit of all parties concerned. Nor were the Chigachovs without sympathy or affection towards their peasants. On the death of one particularly esteemed serf, Andrei even composed the poem. I have received another push by fate, right before the new year. A wonderful peasant in Likova has closed his mouth for the ages. His name was Osip Stepanich, and he was dedicated to us with his soul. Having found out, believe me, I screamed. He was quiet, kind, and never quarrelled with anyone. But none of this mitigates the fact that Andrei employed bodily punishment when he found it necessary and he often did, since he suffered from a rather volcanic temper. Take one incident involving his son. While I was occupied with Kulchashev's letter, a shot ran up with cheeks scorched by the samovar. My god, how I was scared and furious. I beat all the servant girls, both the guilty and the innocent. Thank god they rubbed him with grated potatoes. And of all, Alosha was very scared and cried, Nevertheless, he has gotten better. Although very rare on both the Chikachov and Chernavin estates, partially because they were managed by landlords who at least seemed to be conscientious, more serious instances of peasant unrest did occur, with instigators among the serfs urging their fellows to steal or destroy property. On these occasions, Andrei was not slow to prescribe or advise first corporal punishment and then the ultimate censure, exiled Siberia. Demanding exile was unsurprisingly a rare and final resort, since the Chikachovs would essentially lose their own property, the exiled peasants, forever and without compensation. Andrei and others like him were ultimately aware that their existences were dependent on the goodwill of the peasants and their acquiescence to a social order that demanded their unfreedom. That such goodwill and acquiescence might be withdrawn at any given moment was a constant concern that even invaded Andrei's dreams. During the night on this date in 1829, I had a terrible dream that in some town all the houses, stone and wooden, were destroyed, as if by an earthquake, and a dark haze was in the air. Maybe that dream was an omen of the unpleasantnesses that I had with my household serfs that summer. In other words, peasant unrest could strike like an earthquake, bringing all property crashing down around it. In such circumstances, behaving like a complete and utter tyrant could only serve to undermine the Chikachovs. Equally, the Chikachovs understood that the serfs were not an undifferentiated mass. Hierarchy and differences in status were comprehended 
and even manipulated by the masters. On one level were the two serfs the family trusted above all else, the nanny and the estate bailiff. These two individuals partook in most family activities, including those quiet, intimate evenings spent reading, sewing and playing the piano. So great was the esteem for the nanny that Alexei, Andrei's son, gave to her power of attorney to deal with his estate when he was absent in 1861. Nanny did not enjoy the experience, since she was forced between a rock and a hard place. The serfs expected that she would act as one of them, while André hoped she would defend his interests. As for the bailiff, for much of André's life, this role was entrusted to the redoubtable Grigory Alexiev, nicknamed Rachok. Rachok was treated by André less as a servant and more as a constant comrade, with both men using familiar forms of address to refer to each other. Rachok was entrusted with highly complex errands that took him as far as Moscow. When, in 1835, Andrei was contemplating on what to do with the decrepit wooden manor house, it was Rachok who suggested a stone replacement. He knew his master so well that he was able to foresee Andrei's objections even before he had made them. Beneath these two were the household serfs, including serving girls, cooks, coachmen, a gardener, weavers, wet nurses, carpenters, bricklayers, plasterers, those in charge of the estate's outbuildings, and a musician. Then there came the field serfs, the most esteemed of whom were the elders, the elected representatives of villages, who dealt with daily matters of discipline and land allocation. Andrei believed he knew all the villagers of Dalashayeva by name. On our land, Andrei described, everyone bows in politeness. You will meet neither an old man nor a boy who, when meeting you, will not take off his hat and bow. This custom I support. How? With my own bow, with a loud greeting, so that the others may hear it. But of his serfs in outlying properties, Andrei confessed he did not even know how many of them there were, let alone their names, occupations and condition. This is no surprise when we consider the way in which the Chikachov couple divided work between them. For it was not Andrei, but Natalia, who dealt with the day-to-day -day running of the family's various concerns with Andrei only weighing in when harsh discipline was required or when his wife was ill. This may strike some modern listeners as odd. Western understandings of the Victorian division of household labour suggests that women were occupied only with domestic matters and children, while men dealt with finances and relations with people beyond the family unit. However, in 19th century Russia, Natalia's role as a state manager was nothing unusual, and this was for several reasons. First, the estate was understood as an extension of the household. In this sense, Natalia's management of, say, the production of flax by some of the family's serfs was simply an extension of her management of the manor house. Indeed, given that the serfs were understood being akin to children, just as it was Natalia's job to nurture her offspring, 
so it was her job to oversee and nurture her peasants. Turning to Andre only in those instances when serious disciplinary intervention was required. Second, there were the peculiar legal and historical circumstances of the Russian nobility. For one thing, unlike in much of Western Europe, Russian noble and merchant women did not surrender their property on entering marriage, but continued to hold on to it. As such, women, or at least women of social rank, managed their own property and even business concerns. And this was not a rare phenomenon in imperial Russian society. For another thing, the conditions of noble service in the 18th century had very much forced upon women the role of a state manager. Peter the Great had decreed that all male nobles had to serve the state, either in the army or the bureaucracy, for several decades of their lives. Just as serfs were obliged to serve their masters, so their masters were obliged to serve the state. As such, most noblemen spent their lives away from their estates, being on them only during childhood and, if they were lucky, old age. Women had to step in and fill the gap. Although Catherine the Great abolished obligatory noble service in 1785, thereby allowing people like André to spend their time on their manners, state service remained a near compulsory aspect of male noble culture. For some, it provided income and career advancements, while for others it was a key method for fulfilling patriotic obligations and gaining the patronage necessary, even for rural gentry. So, in the 1820s and 30s, female-managed estates were still not unusual among the Russian nobility. Finally, the personalities of a Chikachov couple suggested such a division. In all her correspondence and diaries, Natalia, while not unaffectionate, is often terse, pragmatic and businesslike, turning most letters to the subject of prices, production and purchases. In contrast, André depicted himself as a dreamer, philosopher and inventor, much more at home with the novel than the accounts. His effusive letters, full of sentiment and witty punning, take paragraphs to say what Natalia was capable of delivering in a sentence. To give some idea of the full scope of Natalia's duties from the 1820s until the middle of the 1850s, when poor health finally forced some scaling back, I give a list prepared by Kate Pickering Antonova, the principal Western historian of the Chikachovs. Needlework, kitchen tasks, provisioning the estate, supervising and recording the sale of the produce of the estate, contributing the family's small-scale charity to the church and the local poor, overseeing serf labour in the house, garden, mill, barns or fields, and finally keeping the accounts, which included daily credits and debits, harvest and planting records, records of supplies given to serfs, and quit-rent payments received, and serf work schedules, such as the watch kept over harvested goods or the duties given to different weavers. Given this workload and her four pregnancies, of which two ended in fatalities, it is little wonder that Natalia's health was a frequent cause for concern. 
even the needlework that Natalia occupied herself with in spare moments was not purely a leisure activity. The finished products were either given to serfs on the estate, or sold to local peddlers. On a mortgaged estate like the Chikachovs, sitting in the middle of an agriculturally poor region, every little helped to secure the family budget for yet another year. That the family was able to recover from the massive debts Andrei inherited from his sibling is at least in part due to Natalia's considerable talents as a manager. What then was Andrei doing while his wife pored over ledgers, counted bundles of flax and haggled over payments? Unlike some of his friends and relatives, he never stood to become a local marshal of the nobility, a post which involved overseeing the execution of government decrees. The closest he came to taking a public role was during the cholera epidemic of 1831, when he served temporarily as a health inspector. Instead, André buried himself in intellectual pursuits. These took on a variety of forms. On the most mundane level, it was André who conducted correspondence with both government institutions and better-placed, wealthier nobles who might be in a position to help the family. Such letter-writing campaigns were key when it came to finding appropriate boarding schools for the children, or securing an Alexei an appointment in a relatively prestigious army regiment. Inventing new tools and objects also occupied André, such as a semaphore system he used to communicate with his brother-in-law Yakov when living in the other manor house in Borduki. Yakov's manor could be espied via telescope across a dividing river. At night, the two used candles. Another invention was a children's pump that, while providing André's offspring with play and exercise, also directed water to parts of the kitchen gardens. André also wrote for public consumption, initially working on a semi-autobiographical novel entitled The Innovator, he hoped to offer his ideas on landlord-peasant relations, estate management, education and charity as a model to others in a similar position. Although the novel never got far, and the few passages that survive are written in horrendous prose, the thoughts he developed eventually became a series of articles published in national journals and newspapers, where they garnered a respectable degree of attention. But probably André's biggest concern was educating his two children, and Alexei in particular. André took a special care in designing a curriculum that balanced academic subjects, such as writing, reading and arithmetic, lessons in estate management, which range from visits to nearby mills, to indulging Alexei's delight in horse riding, and the development of sociability consisting mostly of taking Alexei to visit neighbouring nobles and government officials. Brother-in-law Yakov, a retired naval lieutenant, undertook the teaching of mathematics. When it came to foreign languages, André took great personal care to impart French to his children, since this language remained an important facet of noble identity. To be regarded as cultured and educated, Nobles simply had to know French. As for German and Latin, tuition was given by both local and foreign tutors, 
the latter representing no small expense for the household. The family's German governess made herself worth the cash, not just for the lessons she gave the children, but also for a remarkable habit she introduced. André frequently complained that air in his house was stuffy and unclean, which was normally combated with incense and potpourri. The Fraulein, however, simply threw open the windows of her room to air it, even in the winter. The innovation was swiftly adopted. Both children were also taught how to play musical instruments. Alexei's violin remained a lifelong passion. As for Alexandra, we know less about her education, although Andre's diary note, a couple of years after she was born, gives some hints. It is necessary to drum into a girl's head how she should always behave, i.e. both when single and when married. Meekness, submissiveness, kindness, justice, sensitivity and compassion to subordinates and to everyone. These are her virtues. And shrewdness, trickiness, the wish to lord it over her husband, falsity and other such qualities constitute a misfortune to her to her husband and to the entire family. To complete their homeschooling, both children were sent to private boarding schools in Moscow. So important was education that it pervaded the family's hours of relaxation, since the key way in which the evening hours were whiled away was through reading out loud. André took this very seriously. All family members, including some household serfs, were expected to attend precisely at the allotted time and sit without stirring for at least an hour, interrupting only if they had questions about the book at hand. Failure to observe these rules would lead to André throwing the book to the floor in exasperation. For André, his own private reading was not so much about leisure, but gaining sufficient knowledge to impart to his children. For Natalia, in contrast, Reading was a pastime, an escape from the heavy duties of running the household and the estate. And it seems that reading material was both ample and varied, in contrast to famous images from Russian literature that depict the provincial noble manor as a barren desert bereft of culture. For Chikachovs and their social circle subscribed to both local and national newspapers, specialist journals on agriculture, medicine and the army, and more generalised periodicals. In terms of novels, both Russian and translated foreign authors were consumed avidly. André had fulsome praise for Jane Austen's Emma and a translated Chinese novel, but preserved his deepest admiration for the internationally famous Russian poet Alexander Pushkin, and the much more obscure publicist Fadei Bulgarin, forgotten today and mostly despised back then for his turgid prose, shameless plagiarism and obsequious informing to the secret police. Reading was one evening activity. Music, played by either the children or a surf specialist, was another, along with needlework, card games and billiards. Natalia was thrilled to play cards with her friends and family for money, while André preferred chess, drafts and billiards, especially when his brother-in-law was available for a tournament or two. 
But socialising was the greatest joy, especially during the winter months, when sleighs could glide over the frost-bitten roads. All the nobles in the local area made regular circuits of each other's homes, either popping in for tea or staying for dinner and games. Business calls, whether from fellow nobles or a range of priests, clerks, lawyers, doctors and merchants, often involved a social element. Offering refreshment and an hour or two of conversation was only polite after all. Holidays both secular and religious were occasions awaited with impatience, birthdays being the occasion for gift-giving and New Year's Day an opportunity to down a shot or two of vodka. For Natalia in particular, social calls offered a valuable diversion. Bound to the estate by work, she was unable to go visiting as regularly as her husband. And if friends could not meet in person, then letters could suffice. Andre always took particular delight in writing to brother-in-law Yakov, engaging in lengthy word games. Such sociability served more practical aims. Small loans could be advanced and paid off, and prospective marriage partners for the children scouted out. As their parents had done, both Alexei and Alexandra ended up marrying locally. For guests both new and old, the Chikachovs endeavoured to offer the best available. Prudent with their finances, Andrei and Natalia splurged on imported goods only rarely. Sometimes a bottle or two of French wine, or perhaps a wad of Dutch writing paper. During his military service, son Alexei became a household favourite for sending a batch of nationally famous Viasma gingerbread back home. Otherwise, most of their fare was sourced locally from their estate or peddlers, from whom the family bought caviar and olives harvested in the empire's temperate southern regions. Natalia was renowned in Vladimir province for her special jam preserves made of raspberries in honey. When not entertaining, Andrei was an advocate of exercise and moderate eating, which limited the meals to a modest selection of soups, vegetables, meat dishes and pastries. Sometimes such moderation was enforced by poor crop yields in the region, although unlike their peasants, the family had money enough to ensure starvation was always kept at bay. In contrast, holidays were moments of gluttony, with stomach ailments from overeating often troubling family members on these occasions. Qualified doctors were available for these moments, and for when other, more serious complaints struck, but their advice and cures scarcely differed from the folk remedies also applied. Tobacco enemas, bloodletting, leeches, hot steam baths, herbs infused in tea, wine and vodka, mint drops, cod liver oil, vinegar balms, and a host of dubious creams, infusions and powders were deployed to fight rheumatism, flu, rashes, scrofula, and any number of other maladies. Of course, the limited medical knowledge of the mid-19th century was ultimately little defence against serious problems. 
nor could it defend against the terrible accidents that might plague the country dweller. Death was a constant companion. Yakov and Natalia lost the other Chernavin brothers in a boating accident in 1825. Two of the Chikachov children lived only a few days after their birth. Most tragic of all were two deaths that occurred within five years of each other. In 1845, Yakov Chernavin, Andrei's great friend and Natalia's dear younger brother, exploded himself into oblivion when he accidentally swept his lit pipe onto a box of fireworks he was storing near his desk. As Andre wrote but a short time later, It's already been 65 days since my brother Yakov Ivanovich is not on this earth. Lord, my dear God, how time passes and how one after another people leave this life for the other. It grieves me to think of this, but we all take part. And who knows whether the Lord has appointed me to live long, and what kind of death will I expire? Yakov Ivanovich is not on this earth. Ach, my God, my God. But this is our earthly life. And then, in 1850, Alexandra, Andre and Natalia's only surviving daughter, died from complications in childbirth, having birthed three children in three years. This time, Andrei's grief was such that he briefly decided to flee from his family, taking up residence in a Suzdal monastery with the intention of becoming a monk. Only a barrage of letters from friends and relatives persuaded him to return home to his duties. But from this point until his death, he became increasingly obsessed with both religion and mortality. Andrei had always been a pious man, regarding orthodox Christianity as both a source of morality and the fundamental foundation of the social order. This underwrote Andrei's political and social conservatism. Looking to both Russia's cities and the West, he decried the decline in piety and the dissolution of a clear social hierarchy. In the countryside he held, priests and churches remained influential, and everybody knew their place. Russia's future was to be found in its countryside, not in foreign or urban models. However, as a man thoroughly inured in rural living, he was neither so blind nor so naive as to believe that the Russian countryside, dominated by the unfree state of serfdom, was some kind of Eden. Nor was he a Luddite, utterly opposed to technological progress. Indeed, he was an avid fan of both the telegraph and the train. Rather, he believed the countryside had an incredible amount of potential, if only it was rationally and properly developed. If the peasants were properly educated, and if the gentry lived modestly, humbly, and moderately, then it might be possible to transform Russia's fields and forests into a real source for national renewal. That was the role of himself, his wife and his children, to slowly but surely, through rational management, transform rural society while maintaining its most valuable essence, 
its religiosity and its divinely ordained social order. What this meant for serfdom, André never clearly articulated. Perhaps he expected it to merely fade away once education eradicated its core justification, the irrationality and childlike states of the Russian peasantry. However, events undercut Bachikachovs and their worldview. Russia's disastrous performance in the Crimean War of 1853-1856 convinced leading circles in both society and state that something had to change. The new emperor, Alexander II, was thus persuaded to emancipate all the empire's serfs in 1861, at the stroke of a pen transforming millions of peasants into free subjects. Lands once held by nobles were redistributed among them, although not for free. The price of a land was to be paid to the state over the course of decades. Corporal punishment was abolished, and the powers once wielded by noble landowners were distributed instead among village elders. No longer able to rely either on free labour or free payments, many nobles like André, somewhat prosperous but wholly reliant on their estates, were forced either to rapidly modernise agriculture on their remaining lands, or seek new roles either in government service or the increasingly industrialised economy. Alexei, for instance, had to take a well-paid but unfulfilling and under-demanding job at the Vladimir railway line. Natalia and André lived to see the roles that they had maintained for decades, careful curators of the rural order, disappear, with her dying in 1866 and him in 1875. Their grandchild, Konstantin Chikachov, still held the manor house of Dalajaeva in 1917. Following the Bolshevik Revolution and Konstantin's death, his son became a mathematics teacher in the county town of Bovrov, while his daughter transformed the ancestral home into a school, which it remained until recently. We still find a Chikhachov living in the Kovrov district as late as the 1970s. A factory worker, Oleg Chikhachov, was awarded as an honoured veteran of labour. But this, dear friends, is a tale for another time.